Lord, as we continue to worship you this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, and help us to respond in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to River Rock Bible Church. Good morning. My name is Charlie Turner. I'm the lead pastor here at River Rock. And for those of you that are joining us for the first time or for the first time in a while, we're in a series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've kind of broken up the book into a bunch of different series within the series, uh, kind of like Inception, right? It's like a dream within a dream. And uh, so right now we're in the middle of a section where we're talking about the different gifts that God has given the church, the spiritual gifts, and what does it look like to use those gifts? And uh, we've been talking about, for, in chapter 12, we looked at what are some of the different gifts and how do we use those gifts. And then last week, Mason did a great job teaching on 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about the supremacy of love. And this morning, Paul's going to kind of come back to this idea of gifts in chapter 14 and talk about what it looks like for us to use our gifts in a worship gathering. When we come together as the church, what does it look like for us to use the, the different gifts that he's given us? And one of the things that we've seen throughout this section and throughout this book is that all believers are gifted in, at some level with one of these gifts. And, but typically, you know, we have, uh, we, we're called to use these different gifts. And what we've said before is, hey, just because you don't excel in one area, just because you don't have a certain gift, doesn't mean you're exempt from exhibiting that behavior, right? I don't have the gift of mercy, doesn't mean I get to be a jerk, right? We don't get to claim that. I still am called to, to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness. So, but the reality is that each of us have one or maybe two gifts that when we're using that gift, man, God just works in a special, powerful way. Like we excel in that and it energizes us. Uh, for some of you, it's serving. Like you, you love getting here and moving chairs, right? And thinking about like, man, someone's going to sit in this chair this morning and they're going to hear the word of God. And that's exciting to you. For others of you, it's teaching. And you think, man, I just can't wait to get with other people or the kids back in children's ministry and share what God has shown me from his word this week. I just can't wait for that to happen. For others, it's evangelism. And you're just like, man, I cannot wait for the word of God to come out of my mouth and for me to ask somebody, like, do you know Jesus? And each of us have those different gifts uh, that energize us in different ways. And the reality is that the church body, as we saw a couple weeks ago, we're one body, but we're many parts there is diversity within the body. One of the things that we talk about here at River Rock all the time is unity, not uniformity, right? If we all look alike, dress alike, talk alike, sound alike, that would be an extremely boring church to be a part of, right? We, we need some diversity. We want unity, not uniformity. And the thing that unites us in the use of our spiritual gifts is that the gospel would go forward, that men, women, and children would be reached they would hear the gospel, they would respond to it, come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then we could walk with them through maturity. And so Paul is kind of addressing this with the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church is, is an extremely charismatic church, but they're also an extremely carnal church. They've taken things from the world and brought them into the church rather than taking things from the church and taking them out to the world. They're, they lack in no gift is what Paul says, but they're lacking in love. Right? And that's, that was the whole point of chapter 13. I mean, Paul spends an entire section reminding them that they're to be relating to one another in love. And the gifts that they esteemed 
most highly were the ones that Paul says are actually the lesser gifts. You know, the Corinthians prided themselves on their knowledge, but Paul shows them, hey, you guys may have, you know, claim to have this knowledge, but really you're immature, and your immaturity shows up in the fact that, that you're not willing to love each other. And I could tell that you don't love each other because you're not willing to address things like immorality in the church. Right? Remember back to chapter 5 where you have a man who's sleeping with his father's wife? And Paul says, you don't love the man enough to tell him that it's wrong? You don't love each other enough to tell each other that you shouldn't be suing each other in court? Man, you guys are, you guys are missing the boat here. And so he reminds them that love is what must be covering all that they do. He, he also says, you know, you guys aren't willing to surrender your rights out of love because what you don't realize is that you're causing other Christians to stumble. And you're not willing to give that up to help your brother or sister in Christ to become more mature. Spirituality cannot be measured by the presence of any one gift, including and especially in this case that Paul's going to talk about this morning, the gift of tongues. We are in desperate need of other believers. And we're in desperate need to be relating to each other in love. One of the things that we have to understand is that we are gifted for the spread of the gospel and for the health and the wholeness of the church. This morning, we're going to be talking about how we are gifted to build up the church. And Paul is going to use this phrase, build up. Some translations say edify. He's going to use that phrase over and over again throughout this chapter. And we're going to see the importance of what it means to build each other up when we come together. How do we use our gifts? How do we interact with each other in a way that, that leaves us built up and leaves us stronger as a body? And we're going to see something really cool happen at the end when we get to verse 25. But there's a couple things I want to talk about before we go into that. Really, Paul is going to focus in on two spiritual gifts in this section. And they're, they're two gifts that are, are really, what's interesting is, this, is, this whole section, like chapters really 11 through 14, but you could say 12 through 14, are all about unity. And the sad thing is that it's these chapters that have led to more denominations being created than any other passages because people want to fight about things like tongues and women's role in church and prophecy and praying and what does all this mean, right? So this, what's crazy is the thing that Paul meant to bring the church together is the very thing that has led to more division in the church. So Paul is going to use as an example of how we exercise our gifts. He's, he's going to choose two uh, because these were a big deal for the Corinthian church. But there's, there's more than just tongues and prophecies being talked about here this morning. We're going to see that very clearly. But I want to I explain a little bit about what Scripture means when it talks about tongues. Now, I know in a Bible church, tongues is not something that we talk about a lot. It's not something that we uh, see practiced a lot in the Bible church. It's usually in different denominations. But I want to be clear, and this comes across very clearly in this passage, Paul does not forbid the use of tongues. He doesn't tell people not to speak in tongues. Uh, but I think it's important that we understand what Scripture means when it uses the word tongues, or our translation that we use this morning uh, says languages. Now, 
When we think about tongues, most of us think of Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes. And, and I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as possible. Um, but basically, on that day, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes after Jesus has ascended. The, all the disciples that are together are filled with the Holy Spirit. They go out into the street because people have seen this commotion that's going on. They've seen something crazy happening. And they start speaking. And as they're speaking, they're speaking in languages that they didn't previously know. These are languages that other people know, right? We read about a list of people that had come from all over the world that were there in Jerusalem, and they're speaking in Arabic, and they're speaking in these other languages. The disciples were unschooled Galilean men. They did not have foreign language class when they were in high school. They probably didn't go to high school, right? So there's no way that these men would have been able to learn these languages, but supernaturally God empowered them to speak the other languages. And what do the people say? They say, how is it that we're hearing this message in our own language? Each of us can understand. So when I think about tongues and what we see throughout the New Testament is everywhere that the word tongues or languages is used, it's always a known language. Uh, that was previously unknown to the speaker, right? So if I started speaking in French, never had French class, if I started speaking in French, uh, that would be a supernatural thing that would be happening, right? So what Paul is saying is, hey, sometimes God enables someone to do that, but most likely that's usually because there's someone here that only speaks French and they don't understand English and they need to understand, Okay, so that's, that's one understanding of what tongues is, but I think there, there's a possibility that something else was happening with the Corinthian church. You see, we've already talked about how the Corinthian church was this very kind of worldly church where they were taking things from the world and bringing it into the church. And in the uh, Greek pantheon and in their religious cults, one of the things that was practiced was you would have an oracle that would just start speaking and babbling this ecstatic speech right? Just kind of like, make a lick a high, make a hiney ho. Anybody remember Pee-wee's Playhouse, right? Uh, so, like words that nobody, they, they didn't really have, it wasn't its own language. It was just sounds that would come out. Uh, and then all of a sudden, in, in the Greek uh, cult, what they would do is, hey, I can interpret that, and I can tell you what, what your priestess just said was, you all need to give 20% more. Uh, and bring more sacrifices and give more, right? I'm like, oh, well, that's miraculous. So there's a chance that what's happening is they're seeing that, and they're like, hey, that's pretty cool. That's pretty moving worship. That's a pretty exciting thing to have happen. It's pretty exciting when someone stands up and runs around the room and is, like, shouting in different stuff that nobody can understand. Like, that's pretty emotional. We like that. And so there's a chance that that's what's happening uh, here. Although I really feel, as we look at other, passage, uh, other parts of this passage, I really feel like what Paul's talking about is more along the lines of speaking a known language that was previously unknown to the speaker. Does that make sense? All right, so what is prophecy? Again, there's division on what, what does this mean? What does this mean to prophesy? Some people believe it means that there were people in the church that could see the future of what was coming, of what God was going to do. God supernaturally gifted them to be able to say, hey, here's what's coming, and here's how we need to prepare for that, like the Old Testament prophets. There are others who understand this term prophecy to mean the bold, clear uh, proclamation of God's word, all right? And uh, my understanding of prophecy in this context that Paul is using it is that it's not foretelling what's going to happen, but it's forthtelling 
right? It is, hey, here's what God's word says, and here's what we need to do about it, right? So very similar to today's preaching in a worship service, right? And I think there's, as we're going to see in the, the section after this, the last half, when Paul says, hey, after someone has prophesied, you need to weigh that prophecy, because here's, here's the reality of the church in Corinth. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't have all the Old Testament scrolls to bring with them. Everybody didn't have their own copy of the scripture, right? So they showed up to church, and not everybody had a Bible. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? People show up to church without a Bible. I don't know why. All right, so, so they weren't able to look at what the speaker was saying and say, yeah, that's right. That's in line with what Scripture says. So there were very few, usually men, who either had a copy or had really studied the copies of the text, and they would look to those men and say, hey, uh, does what he's saying line up with what God's Word says, right? There's a time of measuring what's said. And so then those people would give a thumbs up, like, yep, yeah, that's good, that measures up with what, what God's Word says, or like, eh, like maybe we need to think about that a little bit more, and there'd be a time of explanation. So for those reasons, I think when, when we talk about prophecy this morning, what Paul is talking about is the clear proclamation of God's Word in order that people's lives would be changed to be more in line with God's desire for them, all right? So is that clear as mud? All right, good. Hopefully that has a little bit of clarity. I just wanted to say all that before we jump into the text. Let's start with chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, above all that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another language is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the Spirit. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for their edification, for their encouragement, and their consolation. The person who speaks in another language builds himself up, but he who prophesies builds up the church. I wish that all of you spoke in other languages, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in languages, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that love governs the use of all of our gifts. Paul has just spent an entire chapter teaching them how to love, telling them what is the character of love, and reminding them of the kind of love that they are to have for one another. Love governs the use of all of our gifts when it comes to using our gifts in our church gatherings. We must pursue love first. We must pursue love first. The exercise of all gifts is motivated by and governed by love. When Paul uses that term love, he's talking about a very specific kind of love. Mason mentioned this last week. All throughout chapter 13, the word that's used there is agape love. It means self-sacrificial love. Love. It's the kind of love that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us when he gave his life on the cross. And so what Paul is saying is that as you use your gifts, your gifts are designed to be used to build up other people. They are meant to be used in love. They are meant to be sacrificial, that it would cost you something as you use your gifts, but others would benefit from it. The same way that our salvation, our relationship with God cost Jesus Christ something, but so many others have benefited from it. And here's the thing, when it comes to 
when it comes to the use of tongues, what was happening is uh, the people that were speaking in tongues, everyone's looking at it, and they're saying, wow, look at Mason. And Mason, meanwhile, is just kind of having a conversation with God. And they're, they're saying, look at how awesome Mason is. And Mason is like, man, this is great. I'm getting to enjoy this worship with God. This is awesome. This is great. And everyone's looking at Mason, but no one else is being built up because they don't understand what's happening. They don't hear the words that are being spoken. Yet when someone stands up and declares the word of God and says, here's what God's word says and here's what we need to do, everyone can hear and understand that. And so out of love, Paul says, hey, it's great that you can do that, but when we get together, when we get together, we got to realize that our purpose in being together is to encourage one another. He says that prophecy edifies. That means it strengthens. It encourages and it, cons- it comforts or it's a consolation to people. When we come together on Sunday morning, I want to encourage us as a church body to be looking around and seeing who is it that needs to be strengthened. Man, someone may be struggling in their faith. When you're at small group, when you're here on a Sunday morning, are you paying attention to what's happening around you? Are you looking at those around you saying, man, what is their demeanor? Let me tell you, when you ask somebody, hey, how's it going? What do they say? Fine. Okay. This is not a church where it's okay to be fine. We want to know. I want to challenge you. When you ask somebody, hey, how's it going? And they say, fine. Say, no, that's not good enough. Tell me how it's really going. Love them enough to listen. And if they need to be strengthened, ask God, God, how can I strengthen them? If they need to be um, encouraged, ask God, how can I encourage them? Or maybe they just need to be comforted. Ask God, what does it look like for me to do that? See, the reality is, it doesn't matter if you're a new church, a big church, a wealthy church, a popular church, a serving church, a growing church, or even a gifted church. The church is absolutely nothing without love. The church is absolutely nothing without love. And the kind of love we're talking about here is not sentimental feelings towards one another. It's not goodwill. It's not uh, random acts of kindness. This is self-denial. This is self-denial. This is when, uh, when we do this, when we're governed by this kind of love, people go with less, people go without, and people go with worse so that others may have more. I thought about that this week, and I got to tell you, the greatest example of this in my life has been my parents. My dad drove, like, I think it was a a 1979 Toyota Corona, where the headliner was falling in, and I remember the summer that my mom actually pulled the, the sun visors off and recovered them, and then she went in and she tacked the headliner because... We needed school clothes. And if mom and dad had bought a new car and had a car payment, we wouldn't have been able to afford school clothes. So dad went without and dad went with less. Mom was the same way. Every year, dad would get her something for for Christmas uh, and she would always return it. Part of that's because she says dad has no taste in women's clothing, which (laughs) is probably a good thing. Uh, I'd be a little bit worried if he did have good taste in women's clothing, but... But she would always take it back, not because she didn't want a gift, but because she knew there were other things that the kids needed or that my dad needed. And she was willing to go without. She was willing to go with less so that we could have more. 
I want to ask you, when you think about your church family, does that characterize the kind of relationship you have with them? When's the last time you gave something up so that someone else could benefit? When's the last time you gave up time to be with someone who was just hurting? When's the last time you, you gave up money to help someone who just needed a little, little bit of extra help? I want to encourage us, let us be a church that is characterized by that kind of love. In 1 Corinthians 8, 8 verse 1, Paul reminds us of this. He says that knowledge inflates with pride. Some translations say knowledge puffs up, but love does what? Love does, love builds up. Love builds up. Let's keep going in verse 6. It says, but now if I come to you speaking in other language, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Skip down to verse 9. He says, in the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world and all have meaning. All right, so this is, this is another argument for the case that Paul is not talking about ecstatic random speech that, that nobody knows, but he's actually speaking about known languages. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in what? What does it say? Seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in another, in another language should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another language, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, I will praise you with the spirit. Uh, if, I, if you praise with the spirit, how will the uninformed person say Amen. At your, thank, at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying. For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other languages more than all of you, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another language. So what's Paul saying here? The next thing that Paul's saying is that the gifts should be used to build up the whole church, bringing greater glory to God. Our spiritual gifts are meant to be used to build up the whole church, bringing greater glory to God. So gifts are not given for you to build yourself up. And that was the struggle that was happening with, with tongues. And I'm not picking on tongues. Again, Paul encourages it. He says there's a time and a place for it, but a public gathering is not it because it only builds up one person. And I got, I got to be honest. When I was young and I started preaching, I started preaching when I was 20 years old. And when I first started preaching, uh, people started telling me how good I was. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. Now, I didn't let them know that I liked it. I would kind of do this, like, you know, like, oh, no, it's all God. It's all God. And then I realized one day, like, if it was all God, it would be way better uh, than what I was doing. But there was a part of me that just really liked receiving that. And there was a part of me that felt like, you know what, every week I've got to be better than I was. I've got to be more entertaining. I've got to be more funny. I've got to be more this. I've got to be whatever. Because I liked the attention that I was getting, and then it hit me. God 
very clearly took a two by four and smacked me between the eyes and said, you know what? It's not about you. It's not about you. And when we come together on Sunday morning, what you have to realize, church, it's not about you as an individual. It's not about you. And so often we get so selfish when we come on Sunday morning and we get our feelings hurt because the band didn't play my favorite song. The preacher said something that stepped on my toes and hurt my feelings. And we walk away, we leave churches, or someone said something and and we're not willing to let it go. But Paul's saying, hey, look, it's not about you. This is about the whole body. The whole body being strengthened and built up. Verse 3, again, he talks about how prophecy, the clear use of a gift in love, it strengthens, it encourages, and it comforts. A great test uh, when we use our spiritual gifts is to ask this, does it strengthen and comfort or encourage God's people? Right? How am I doing? It's strengthening, comforting, encouraging God's people. One of the things that's interesting to me this past week as I sat and I thought about this and I thought about how the Corinthian church was just, they were elevating this idea of highly emotional worship, right? That as long as there's emotion, as long as there's crying, as long as there's something exciting happening, then God was really there. And we see that that still happens today. On the other end of the spectrum, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, right? He says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. What's he telling them? I got a feeling that that the Thessalonians were a little bit more like a Bible church and the Corinthians were a little bit more like a a, a charismatic church, right? So the the Thessalonians are like, hey, we don't need emotion. We're going to be stoic. We just need knowledge. If someone will just preach, well, literally in the Greek uh, for them, but if someone would just tell us the Greek and Hebrew, then we'll be good. We want expository, exegetical, that is expository, not suppository, expository, although sometimes it feels that way. We want, we want expository, exegetical preaching every week. We want knowledge. And Paul says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. I wrote this down this week. Worship that is highly emotional but not rational has no benefit for the church. Likewise, worship that is highly rational, but not emotional, has no benefit for the church. Worship should engage both the spirit and the mind. We should not be satisfied with anything less. What does Jesus say in John 4, 23? He says this. He says, those who worship the Father must worship in what? In spirit, that is our emotion, and what? Truth, Truth, that is our mind. We've got to be a church that worships in spirit and in truth, and we shouldn't be satisfied with anything less. A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to go to a, a pastor's conference for church planners, and Francis Chan was one of the speakers there, and it, it was an amazing conference, but one of the things that, that he talked about was how the church in America has just become overwhelmed with this idea that worship has to be emotional, and we spend all this money with fog machines and and lights that flash, and sound systems that go, <laughs> right, so, so that we can create this emotion. And the reality is this, that we can create emotion. 
We, can, we could pick songs. We could pick the top 25 songs that talk about sloppy wet kisses and, and all this stuff that Jesus is my boyfriend. And we could turn out the lights. We could get the lights flashing, the fog machines rolling. Tony could play some monster licks, melt our faces off, and we would all be weeping and crying. But that would be manufactured. And I don't know about you, but when I come to church on Sunday morning, I want, I want to experience something that I can't do by myself. I want to experience something that only God can do. When I walk out of here, I want to walk out of here and say, God was there. God did something. How, how often do we settle for so much less? We just want to experience emotion. And at the same time, there are times when, you know what, I get caught up in the head knowledge. I'm guilty. Like, we're a Bible church. I get that. And I, I wish we could be, you know, I, my prayer is that, that we would find the right balance between these two. And there are times when, man, we just, we just get so focused on truth that we forget that the truth should lead to an overwhelming response. When we take communion, like we did this morning, and I had a moment with my boys where I was just remembering and recalling the reality that it was my sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. And if that reality doesn't move you to tears, that God loved you enough that he would send his son to die for you? And if you're not man enough to suck it up and cry about that, because the God that created this universe loves you, man, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. But what I know is this. There's got to be a balance between the two. And it, but if we're going to err on one side or the other, we're going to err on the side of truth because I believe that when we understand the truth clearly, it will lead to that emotional response because we will be so broken yet so excited about what God has done in and through us. I want to encourage us uh, that we would ensure that we have this selfless love towards one another, that we would be loving each other in a way that leads us to know God's truth and respond to him with, uh, with proper emotion. So if we're going to fall, uh, verse 19, Paul tells us this. He says, I would, yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with understanding in order that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in another language. Paul's saying, hey, last thing I want us to see is that the church is built up and God is glorified when gifts are used to bring understanding. Right? The church is built up and God is glorified when the gifts are used to bring understanding. It doesn't matter what we do if there's no understanding. Verse 7, 7 and 8, Paul talks about inanimate objects. He's going to talk about some instruments and he says, the things that produce sound, whether the flute, harp, if they don't make distinct notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the trumpet makes an uncleared sound, who will prepare for battle? And I, I have some sound bites that we're not going to have time for this morning, but just think about that. Think about if, if a bugler went out to battle, right, and his job is to blow the bugle and tell the troops to advance, to charge. Da -da 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 -da. 
All right, good. You guys all know that one, right? We have that one, don't we, Russell? Do we have the, the charge? All right, there we go. Hey, Astros are one and one. It's the start of the season. Uh, they're predicted to be World Series champs again this year, uh, according to ESPN. Yeah, so let's go Strohs. But we all know that. We know what that call means, right? Uh, but get this. Uh, we have this short clip. I want to show it real fast uh, and take a look at this. <laughs> and two. have a military parade. They're marching in this military parade, and all of a sudden, this guy pulls out his trumpet, and he's blowing unintelligible notes that don't make sense. And I love one guy who has the trumpet. He actually looks at it like, is that me? I thought that was hilarious. Nobody knows what to do. But when you have a clear understanding, when someone speaks with clarity, when someone serves with clarity that I'm doing this because I love you, when someone shows mercy or tenderness and compassion and we exercise our gifts out of love and it brings understanding, then the church is built up. And what Paul is saying is that, hey, when you come and, and you just talk in these, these languages that nobody knows, that nobody understands, like people can't understand. Let's look at what he says in these last few verses beginning verse 20. He says, in verse 22, uh, 20, he says, Don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil, and adult in your thinking. Verse 22, he says, It follows that speaking in other languages is, is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, and all are speaking in other languages, and people who are uninformed or unbelievers come in, will they not say, You are out of your minds? So Paul says, if there's just all this emotional mumbo-jumbo happening, and we're just running around, and we're screaming and crying, and everything's going on, people are going to look at this and be like, they are nuts. I am never coming back here again. All right? But listen to what he says. But if all, if all are prophesying, and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he will be convicted by all and is judged by all. That doesn't mean all the people. It means all that is being said. When God's word is clearly spoken clearly demonstrated, it brings uh, conviction and it brings judgment on the unbeliever. And then it says, the secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. God is really among you. Paul's desire is that as a church, when we speak to another, we would speak with understanding, that there would, it would be in order to bring understanding of what does God's word say and what is God's desire for me? Now, I know this morning I used a Greek term, but I don't often use the Greek and Hebrew and things like that. I went to school for years to study and learn how to read that stuff and, and translate it. But I don't talk about that very often because most of you would be like, right? You would tune out. Uh, there's a story of a, a pastor who went to visit his doctor 
And the doctor comes in and he starts using all these medical terms and, you know, he's telling him all this stuff. And the, doc, the pastor's like, hold on a second, doctor. I don't understand a word you're saying. And the doctor says, well, now you know how I feel on Sundays, right? So we don't get caught up in all of that because it's better that we just speak clearly and then we understand because that's where the body is built up. And, and what does that mean that the body's built up? You see, understanding brings conviction and hopefully salvation for the unbeliever, and it brings maturity for those who are in Christ. Why? So that they can go out and they can share that message with people who don't know Christ and bring conviction and clarity to them that they would come to know Jesus Christ and the body of Christ is built up. The body of Christ is built up in two ways, numerically and maturity. And that's our desire as a church. We want to be a church that builds up the body of Christ. And we do that when we love each other, when we use our gifts in a way that points others to Christ, that takes the attention off ourselves, and it points them to God, our Father. Verse 13, Paul says this. He says, therefore, if a person speaks in another language or should pray, and he cannot, uh, I got the wrong, wrong verse there, uh, and I'm not finding it here. All right, that's my fault. I wrote down the wrong thing. But Paul basically says, hey, if someone's speaking in a language, they're praying in a language that I can't understand, I can't say amen to that. Does anybody know how to say amen in Chinese? Amen. Anybody know how to say amen in Spanish? Amen. Anybody know how to say amen in French? Amen. Does anybody know how to say amen in West Texan? Amen. Right? Right? It's like 40 syllables for that four-letter word. Here's the point. Amen is a universal language. Amen is a universal language. But if what we say can't be understood, it doesn't matter. Because if I can't comprehend it, if I can't understand it, then I can't say amen to it because I don't know what you just said. But if what I say is clear and it builds me up, it strengthens and encourages, comforts me, or someone who listens, then we can all say amen. And when that happens, Paul says, get this, those who don't know Christ, that come and they worship with us, they will fall face down and say, God is among you. What's the sign of a healthy church? It's people are being built up, and unbelievers are leaving, maybe not having put their trust in Christ, that's our ultimate desire, that they would, they would come to know Christ, but at least they're walking out saying, man, God was there. God was there. And that doesn't happen when we manufacture worship. It doesn't happen when your pastor tells funny stories or he's, he's, you know, the next whatever preacher that you like to listen to on your podcast. It happens when we love each other and we use our gifts in ways that build each other up. I want to encourage us to be that kind of church. I want to challenge you this week to think through some of the questions that we've had. How are you using your gifts? How are you building up understanding in other people? Are you giving in a self-sacrificial way? Are you living in a self-sacrificial way that others may be built up? When we do that, I believe that the people in our lives who don't know Jesus Christ will see what's happening in our small groups. They'll see what's happening in our worship services.